Welcome back, earners. Uh, today, I want to take a bit of a detour from uh, what we have been talking about. It's just a small detour. It's not a huge detour. It relates specifically to earnership and independence versus dependence and so on. But the detour that I'm going to take today relates to something that I saw and found very interesting uh, yesterday. Uh, yesterday, uh, the President of the United States, Joseph Biden, uh, gave a speech in Michigan where he talked about uh, the uh, proposed uh, infrastructure bill, the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, and the proposed potential uh, $3.5 trillion, what he refers to as Build Back Better uh, plan. Now, on this podcast, we have spent a great deal of time uh, talking about dependency, talking about how dependency uh, has its essence in government involvement in the lives of the people. Well, yesterday I heard some things that were quite astounding and also go to buttress the conversation that we have been having on this particular issue. Uh, yesterday in Michigan, the president was talking about uh, various ways in which the U.S. economy can be uh, empowered, energized to take a lead in global economics and so on and so forth. He spoke about good union jobs. He spoke about American competitiveness. Uh, and he also spoke about making sure that America leads. Uh, these are all uh, very interesting and quite timely topics. But let's lay what he said within the actual framework of where the world is today. At one point, the world was filled with uh, monarchical and tyrannical regimes. These regimes were not based upon nationalism. They weren't based upon race. They were based upon territory and power. The monarch was essentially the only person with a voice in that community. Now, of course, Monarchs had to have influence with the powerful elements of the community, whether those be barons or lords, landowners, and other forms of property owners of some sort. But the average person was unrecognized. There was no concept of independence or individualism in the way that we know it today. As I spoke in, uh, I believe, episode one, we had what were known largely throughout uh, the known world, fiefdoms or something similar there too, where you had a person or a family that was provided a block of land and that land and the people thereon belonged to that owner and if that uh, property were to be negotiated sold captured whatever the case may be the people went 
with the land. That's how it worked. Then we entered into more of an age of nationalism, where you actually had countries defined and founded based on primarily the notion of race. A German was a German, a Frenchman was a Frenchman, a Brit was a Brit, a Spaniard was a Spaniard, and on down the line. America was a country that welcomed folks from all over, primarily, of course, from Europe, where a Brit was a Brit and a German was a German and a Frenchman was a Frenchman and a Spaniard was a Spaniard and so on. But when they came to America, they were encouraged to become this new thing called American. So they became American, and obviously there was some resistance because you had folks who were born here. And when these new entrants came, they viewed them as competition, unwanted competition, mind you, and let's get rid of them, okay? We don't want them here. But nonetheless, we, we survived that. We survived uh, the uh, captivity of blacks from Africa. We survived all of that, and the people became this new thing called Americans. So that existed, nationalism, uh, essentially through World War II. Then there was a thing called essentially a new world order. It had been trotted out uh, shortly after World War I, where you had this thing called the League of Nations, where ostensibly every nation was to have a voice in the interpretation and the implementation of a more global uh, aspect of uh, power and a more global vision of the world as opposed to the strictly nationalistic uh, vision or at that time the monarchical vision. And the League of Nations, you had new countries that sprouted out of the ending of World War One, many of whom became members of the League. And those countries were to have a voice in the running of the global system. Of course, it was an abject failure because, well, the major countries, particularly the United States of America, certainly did not, and rightfully so, want some world global union of authorities dictating her policy about how she could deal with her people and how she could interact with other countries throughout the world. Uh, then, of course, we had the interregnum where you had the Soviet Union and the Nazi system and other forms of whether fascism or socialism, communism, sprout up to challenge the democracies, the capitalist countries uh, in influence and power. World War II basically said goodbye to uh, the Nazi form of fascism and all those that were similarly linked to them. And surprisingly, surprisingly for me anyway, welcomed a communistic system that was certainly anathema to democratic values. However, that's what happened. We had a Cold War period where you had uh, these global entities uh, set up the United Nations, World Bank, International Monetary Fund, and others that were essentially supposed to allow global players to uh, engage in the issues of the world and to determine what policy should be followed by, well, everyone. 
generally these bodies, well, particularly the United Nations, have been sort of feckless and non-effective, thank goodness. But they are there. The framework is of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, on the other hand, have been quite active in enforcing what would be referred to as global policies on all of us. But I said all that to say this. In this world that we live in now, we are encouraged by economists of all ilk and others to engage in global trade. We even have something called a world trade organization that is to regulate trade between nations. So under this particular model, we have uh, essentially a uh, system that's governed at its basis by the law of supply and demand. Of course, there are other sort of uh, non-supply, non-demand factors or non-free market factors that engage. You know, governments want to have their say in how things are going to work. They want to be able to impose various forms of regulation without being caught out in the system. But ostensibly, the system is based upon the supply and demand of various things. And as we know, supply and demand is essentially dictated by the highest quality at the lowest cost. So having said all that, let me uh, deal with the speech that was given by the president of the United States. In that speech, the president, as I said before, referred to what is uh, called good union uh, jobs. These good union jobs are jobs that are going to pay a higher rate of pay than the uh, proposed minimum wage, which I spoke about in episodes two and three. Uh, this is what he refers to as a prevailing wage rate. Okay. Now, all of these things are fine, I guess, if you live in a world where you have protectionist policies, where a country can dictate how it operates in the world, it is essentially free from interaction with the world and can make a determination as to who or when or where or why any other actor can participate in its domestic markets and how or when or why it can participate in other markets. If we had a world like that, then the United States could have extremely high wage workers and produce whatever and if the United States was a closed system, we bought what we bought from them and maybe occasionally bought something from some foreign uh, operator, but we really wouldn't have very much interference in our own market and it would be viable to pay someone what the president refers to as a prevailing wage. Now, I don't really know what prevailing wage means because it was left undefined, but you can hazard to guess that a prevailing wage, since he referred to that being greater than a standard wage or certainly greater than a minimum wage, that it is something that would be greater than $15 per hour. But we don't live in a world where the United States can close its borders or has closed its borders to international competition. We live in a world very much where the United States through our focus on consumerism, is engaged largely in global markets. We seek to have low-cost consumer goods manufactured outside of the United States so that we can buy those goods cheaply here. We export our technologies to the world so that those markets can consume 
what is referred to as products of our thought economy, but we largely import from them the labor economy. We import the goods from other markets because of their cheap labor. So if we are to live in that world, how would it be possible to pay folks what's called a prevailing wage and expect that these companies that are paying this prevailing wage would be able to compete with low-cost producers of the same goods in other markets. How could it happen? Would it possibly occur? What would be the incentive for an American person to buy, say, a solar panel from an American-based firm paying a prevailing wage to its union workers when the Chinese are producing the same uh, solar panels of a similar quality at far lower labor costs being far less expensive. Why would anyone purchase the American made good? Would they do it out of patriotism? Maybe a couple of people would. But most people do not have money to burn on some good that is vastly more expensive than a competitor good that where the quality difference is almost de minimis. So we would be paying these high labor costs for goods that very few people would consume unless we somehow went against the grain of global trade and closed our markets to competition and demanded that others open their market for the privilege of participating in our market at substantially increased selling prices. That's the only way that this could possibly work. On the other hand, if in fact what I am saying is true, yet we still have this high labor cost market, we know that employers would be unwilling to bear this cost. So who would bear it? And for how long? Before we answer the question of who would bear it and for how long, let's look at what is actually happening in the world of a minimum wage environment. Not a prevailing wage environment, but a minimum wage environment. If you have visited a fast food restaurant in the recent past, whether that's a McDonald's or a Taco Bell or a Burger King or any of these type of large scale fast food operations, what you will instantly notice if you are of a certain age, if you are of another age, it's hardly noticeable, is that you go or have the choice to go to a kiosk to enter in your order. When I was growing up, of course, there was no kiosk to enter your order. Someone would say, may I help you, please? What would you like to have today? But that, though it does exist, is being gradually and in some cases more than gradually pushed out in favor of a kiosk style order taking process. Now, why would this be happening? The upfront cost on these kiosks must be quite expensive. It must cost more than, say, $15 per hour to actually purchase these kiosks. 
And that has got to be true. There is no other way. There's not a cheap one of these things, not as yet anyhow. But these companies, they are looking at this as a long-term investment, a capital investment, if you will, a capital investment that will, in fact, minimize labor. Now, we've heard bogeys for years about how capital uh, replaces labor, and largely that's been untrue. If you look at the development of auto manufacturing, steel manufacturing, whatever happened during the onset and growth of the industrial revolution, it did not displace laborers. It actually made labor more efficient so that a laborer could produce more in a shorter period of time than if they did not have the capital good to serve them. But in today's world, the bogey has become true. If you have a, an order-taking kiosk, then quite naturally, you don't need a duplicative person asking how much, uh, what would you like today? That would be ridiculous. So all of the things that the anti-capitalists have said for years are becoming true in the face of a minimum wage. Now imagine what the effect would be on a prevailing wage. If companies that are affected by minimum wages are figuring out ways to skirt paying those minimum wages, what about companies that would be forced to pay a prevailing wage? Would they not also find ways to skirt having to pay these prevailing wages? Now, you may say, well, the prevailing wage would apply to folks that are doing things that cannot be replaced internationally through competition. Maybe they're pipe fitters, maybe they're electricians, maybe they're folks that are building bridges. All of this is true. But if money is going for all of these things to the high union uh, costs, then that's money taken away from other areas of development where we indeed compete with others in the world. What this means is that for every dollar spent on the union job that is paying a prevailing wage, that is a dollar or more lost in competitive industries where we need to innovate to compete with those international players who are also occupying the same market. Given that, which employers would actually say, I'm in on paying the prevailing wage when they know that it's cutting them out of the competitive market? Probably very few. That means the bill for these prevailing wage jobs would have to be foot by the American taxpayer. Now, the president of the United States also alluded to the fact that the $3.5 trillion Build Back Better plan has a tax component that would only affect those making more than $400,000 per year. 
Now, I have an issue with this. I don't believe that that is, in fact, going to be the case. But let's accept that as being true. Let's say that only those who are making $400,000 a year or more are going to be affected by higher tax rates. That means that whatever money these people who are the proven go-getters, the business developers, the entrepreneurs, if you will, those folks who are willing to take risks to create businesses that create jobs for people who are non-entrepreneurial, they will have less money to be able to engage in those activities because that, that money will be taken by the government to distribute to a minimal number of prevailing wage union job holders. This is a fact. There is no magic pill that can get us out of that particular conundrum. If the government takes money from producers in order to give it to folks who basically consume, then that means that the producers have less money to engage in further production. There's no way to square this circle. It has to be. It is as firm as ground itself. Ground does not become air. Ground is ground, air is air. And if a person tells you that we're going to take more money out of the producing, the producing persons in order to distribute to the consuming persons, then the producers have less to engage in further production. That is a bedrock fact that cannot be denied no matter how much people may want to in fact deny it. So if the producers now are paying out more in taxes so that folks who can consume will consume, I guess, more, what happens? The president says that this plan is fully paid for, and since it's fully paid for, I assume that means that there'll be no inflationary hit because everything is paid for. What comes into existence is, on the other hand, taken out of existence, so you actually have the same dollars just flowing differently. This is the argument, okay? If this were true, maybe there is reason to believe that this could exist in this way. But if the production class has no means to compete in markets, that means in order to be able to compete, they need to raise money somewhere. They need to be able to expand somewhere. How can they expand if the money that they once had has been minimized by the government to give to folks who consume? Well, one way and the chief way is to increase their prices so that they can recoup the money that they lost through taxation. So this just becomes this vicious circle of government take, producer increases price, consumer pays increased price, producer receives that price, government takes. This is the only way that system can operate. We would be on a treadmill with no real 
added production because we constantly would have a government taking and then a producing class charging greater and a consumer class paying greater and the producer receiving more which the government would take and start the cycle all over again. So, how can the Build Back Better plan be something that actually builds back better? Are we to assume that the consumer who gets a higher salary is going to be in the position to, say, do something with their money that will add to the economic engine of the United States? How could it if the government is going to eventually take from the producer what the consumer spent and then return that back to the consumer who gives to the producer whom government takes from and the cycle goes all over again? How would they be able to do it? Secondarily, folks who are primarily consumers and not producers, what do any of them or any of us who may be in that position know about entrepreneurship, know about creating businesses, know about creating jobs? Would we automatically become wizards at this because we have something called a build back better plan? Would we know how to spur economic growth? Would we be a catalyst to be able to lead the American economy into this nirvana of success because we minimize production? How would that happen? This is left unexplained, but we are assured that if taxes are raised on those who are making $400,000 per year, and those taxes go in large measure to implement programs that help consumers, whether it's through wage increases or social safety net programs or things such as, you know, helping trees, then somehow we are going to be better off than we are today. But again, folks, we exist within the framework of a global trade system. Our high wage workers cannot compete with low wage countries that produce the same thing of a similar quality. It cannot happen unless human beings change their nature right now. Unless human beings become the type who say, I'd rather spend more for the same thing than less, this program cannot work. It will not be effective, period. No matter how much someone wants it to be effective, effective no matter how much they tell us it will be effective, it cannot be effective. Let's look at your home, for example. And I know a lot of the folks who are in politics hate to have this notion of, you know, your spending at home compared with government spending as though it is something drastically different, though they are not good at explaining how it's different and what makes government spending very much different from your household spending. 
they're not good at that they try to make it seem like government spending spurs on some other stuff that is a it creates a, a multiplier effect that helps the economy but that is false that's false but that's another argument so in your home let's say you have a mom and a dad and two children both of these children are teenagers mom and dad are making x amount of money and they provide an allowance to the teenagers of y amount now let's say that the teenagers want more than y amount but mom and dad aren't making any more than what they're making but somehow they are encouraged to give their children more if they give their children more the money that they gave their children absolutely is taken from saving or investment that money no longer goes to support the framework of the family, but goes to the pocket of the children. And if the children want the money, it's not going to stay in their pocket and they're not going to bring it back into the household. They're going to spend it outside of the household, which means that this transfer of wealth from parent to child through increased allowance drains the family of much needed funds. It's the same thing with this Build Back Better plan. If, in fact, the producers, the mom and dad in this example, are forced to pay the children, the consumers in this example, more for the same amount of effort, those children, those consumers are not going to add money back to the producer. They are going to spend it in other ways. And this largely will be in consumption of goods produced about abroad which means that the economy of the united states must necessarily grow at a slower rate because money is escaping the united states to go to the coffers of someone else this is building back better now that I wanted to talk about today because I wanted you to understand how nefarious dependency is. We have spent many days talking about the concept of dependency and we've talked about how the government believes itself to always know best what the citizen should, could do. But why? Why does anyone support a system that can only operate in the way that I've described? I'm not describing a system that does not operate in the way that I that I am saying. I'm talking about the very system that they are attempting to implement. How could it operate any different? How could it be that taking money from those who produce and giving it to those who consume, those who consume, consuming it on goods that typically aren't produced by the producers that they are getting the money from, or if they are produced by that producer at such high cost comparative to other producers, how could that system cause growth? How is it possible? You see, folks, we are being talked to consistently 
as if we are a bunch of dummies. As if we are incapable of putting two and two together and understanding that that can only make four. I understand that many people are encouraged to look at this from the consumption angle. What am I getting? And because we are human and we like to love ourselves, well, hopefully we like to love ourselves, we tend to look at what our interest is. But we don't look broadly at our interest. We're not encouraged to look broadly at our interest. We are encouraged to look at our interest in a very narrow way. We are encouraged to look at what's in it for me specifically, not what's in it overall, just me. Short term, how do I win right now, this day? Now, many folks, they won't say that this is what the Build Back Better plan and all other attempts in this way do, but that's what they do. If you're telling me that you're going to pay me a quote-unquote prevailing wage, not because my employer can actually afford that or not because my product, my productivity has increased to the point where that's justified, but merely because the government has determined that a certain category of workers under the rubric of union should get more, of course, I'm going to want to participate in that because everyone wants to earn more. But if we look at our interest at a wider perspective, then we see that the more that I get from a very narrow lens is taking away the more that I could get if the country grew. Now, no matter what anyone tells you, all of these fancy spending programs that are rolled out typically during Democrat administrations, whether it's the New Deal, whether it's the Great Society, whether it's this so-called Build Back Better, have never worked to build economy, have never worked to spur growth. The New Deal was a terrible deal. The cycle of unemployment, of boom and bust, of recession and depression was prolongated from so much government interference with how people would have dealt with each other otherwise that that system just could not work. What revived the American and the global economy during that period was a war. A war led to production. It siphoned off our unemployment problem because men who were in the unemployment lines were now employed in the public sector through military services and other things. Working became capacity because we had to produce the war materials to actually fight a war. So growth came through war. 
the great society with all of its civil rights and affirmative action and fair to everyone and so on and so forth led to stagflation under the Carter presidency. How could it not? You are literally paying people who are not producing relative to their pay. And how will the Build Back Better plan operate any differently? Because it is so much larger than these other two programs, the outcome of this can be nothing more than even worse than those two. I understand we all want a magic pill. We all want to believe that if I personally am better off under this particular narrow scope, then everything is okay. But it never is. Our tradition is built upon individual decision making. I started today's program talking about how the world operated under monarchies and nationalism and so on to show you that whenever the individual is taken out of the equation and decisions are made by others, particularly becomes top down, it always fails. We don't have monarchies today because that system excluded individuals. You didn't exist unless you were the monarch and the f uh, very few others. You really had no existence. It was unsustainable, even though it lasted a long time. It was unsustainable. The nation state was sustainable as long as individuals could make choices. The global system works if you allow individuals to compete with each other freely and fairly. Now, fairly is a very, very, very ambiguous word. Fair to whom? fair to the parties that agree to trade, but that's not how we're treating it. It has to be fair to some group of people who have influence with government folks so they can define what fair is, meaning that the two parties or the 10 parties that engage in the actual trade have very little to do with what is considered fair under these systems where there is no individual autonomy systems fail this is a lesson that seems to have to be learned over and over and over again and this build back better plan takes away the autonomy of the individual period. If you are an employer and you are engaged in the markets where the Build Back Better plan has its footprint, 
you are going to be forced to hire union workers at a prevailing wage, which you would not have done if your individual decision could carry weight. You will not be competitive in a global market because the global market flows towards the lowest cost at the highest quality. This is how it works. So if in Vietnam, folks are producing very high quality for very low wage rates, how is it that an American firm doing business in America, not in Vietnam, not through Vietnam, can in fact compete? These decisions matter, and when they're taken out of the hands of the individual and left to the government to determine, it will end in failure. This is not just me talking. This is not just me pontificating about what I think. It is historical, and I know that the folks who have intellectual ability without any real world experience think differently. They believe that tradition doesn't matter. They believe that history is flawed, that everything starts with them. They thought it, they implemented it, it's going to be good. And when it's not good, they do not take any blame for it. They try to say that things would have been even worse if what they did had not been implemented. We see this throughout history. We are seeing its repeat today. Why would you support something called Build Back Better when clearly history says any such previous experiment failed? What would make this one succeed short of magic? Short of some wish thinking, it can't. I encourage each and every one of you to stand opposed to anything called build back better because it can't build back better. It's a falsehood. What would the president of the United States know about markets? This person has never been engaged in markets. What would he know? Why is he not leveling with you about history, about the utter abject failure of all of these big government programs? Communism was a big government program, but was dwarfed in comparison to a $3.5 trillion Build Back Better program. Communism did not cost $3.5 trillion, but this program in and of itself is earmarked at $3.5 trillion. If a system that costs less than $3.5 trillion, that was all about government thought, government implementation, government fiat failed, 
how could you believe that a $3.5 trillion monstrosity introduced into a country where people are used to making their own decisions would succeed? This is impossible. Fairy tales are in books and movies. Fairy tales do not exist in reality. No matter how much we are convinced that something for nothing would be great, it cannot work. And largely it cannot work because if it did work, no one would do anything and you could have nothing. Production leads to consumption. You cannot consume without that which is produced. Think about this. All of the things that you use today at some point did not exist. You didn't even know that these things could exist, but someone produced it and now you consume it. You have been convinced it's the other way around, that if you want to consume it, somebody's going to produce it. But how would you know? Something as simple as a box of cornflakes before there were ever cornflakes who consumed them. The producer had to generate these things and teach us how to consume them. Then we consume them like gangbusters and everything else works the same. But this build back better is telling you that consumption leads. If we want to consume it, someone will produce it. But how would that be possible? How would you even begin to know what you wanted to consume if it didn't exist? How? This is the fallacy that we are presented with. This is the dependency that they build into us daily. You can have this for nothing. You needn't put in any effort in order to have this. But that always fails. Not sometimes fails. Not generally fails. Always fails. If we have this build back better plan, it is going to fail we will no longer be able to compete with anyone because we won't be able to develop the skills to compete. Everyone will become a universal loafer with the expectation that I'm going to get something without doing anything. They won't view it as being lazy. They'll view it as the expectation of humanity. But let's get a little deeper, just for a second. In whose interest would it be to create a bunch of lazy people? A bunch of parasites. Who has an interest in that? And why? What would make anyone propose such a system to create parasitical behavior.
Why would they do it? It's as if the people want to walk back to a time pre-industrial. They want to walk back to a time where there were lords and serfs. It's as if they want to walk back to a time when the few matter and the many mattered not at all. You see it. Anytime they show some elite event, the elite people are walking around without a mask on. And the servants are walking around with masks on. The elite get served. The servers do the serving. The elite propose a $3.5 trillion parasite creating bill and the serfs succumb to it. It's as if these folks have decided that capitalist principles don't apply to you, they only apply to those at the top. We want to win the game for the few and have the many in eternal serfdom. There was a man named Friedrich Hayek. He is uh, or was an advocate member and proponent of the Austrian School of Economics. He wrote a book called The Road to Serfdom. He talked about the stuff that I'm talking to you about now. Obviously, not a Build Back Better plan because this book was written in the 1940s, but a book that dealt with the issue of the many and the few and how the few through government policies can become serfs. If you think a $3.5 trillion plan that guarantees you something for nothing is not taking away your freedom and making you a serf, reconsider. It appears to me that that's what all these big government spending plans have always been about. No matter how sweetly they presented it to you, it was a way to pacify you. It was a way to make sure that you did not act independently. Do as you are told and you will receive this, whatever the this is, is much, 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 much smaller than what you could receive if you activated your own individuality. But you don't believe that because you have been told that you are nothing 
anyway. That you are nobody. That the world is here and you're some small, insignificant piece of it. And because your efforts matter not, the government is here to rescue you from the worry, from the burden of independence. We'll give you this. Just be quiet. How is it? That we are so willing to accept this. Our schools have conditioned us for years to be this. The teacher says X and does not allow a student to challenge. If the student challenges, that's an F. Comply. You receive an A by the amount and ability you show to comply with the dictates of the teacher. We have been conditioned to think in serfdom's terms. And now we have a 3.5 trillion dollar mechanism that ensures our subservience. Fall in line, you can get a good union paying job. Don't fall in line, you are on your own. Fall in line and you can get cradle to grave government support. Don't fall in line and you stand alone. This is how it's presented without ever actually telling you that. But that is it. They tell us a bunch of nonsensical stuff that does not provide a means for us to succeed as a country and say, it's better than if you lived your life. This is better than producers having sufficient funds to be able to build businesses so that you can get a job and move up in that company or similarly situated firms so that you can also have the American dream. No, 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 this is better. Let's take from those producers. They don't need it. They need to pay their fair share. Though, of course, that term is never defined. What is a fair share? A fair share of what? If the producer didn't exist, what share would there be anyway? What funding does government rely on except funding that comes from folks who produce something that employ people? If folks didn't produce things that led to employment, how could the government collect a dime of taxes? How? Why are these people cutting the noses off their faces? Why are they saying, well, you know, we are going to stifle productive growth for the sake of giving it to folks who are consumers? Why are they teaching us to be leeches? 
Why are they building a system that is only good for those who don't want to work? Why are they producing a system that's only good for those who feel like they are entitled to something? Why are they discouraging freedom? Folks, they are going to make us serfs. Be careful. Building back better is an illusion. It cannot work. Not if the government is doing it. A individual who came up with an idea to build something, how can the government do that better? What do any of these people know about how to build something? Any of them. How? In what respect? In what regard? What have they built? Yet they're going to tell us that this is going to build back better when they have no experience in building anything again. These are the intellectually gifted with no experience. The president of the United States has no experience in any of the stuff he's talking about. Good union jobs. When has he held a union job? Or any other job for that matter. How would he know? When has he owned a business? When has he started a business? When has he taken on the risk that business people take on all the time? Be careful. We are not building back better. We are creating serfs. That's what this is doing. We are creating a permanent underclass of people ruled by the politically connected. Is that the America you dreamed? Is that the America you want? Is that the America that can lead the world in anything? America is precious. America is unique. America welcomed folks from everywhere to mint an American person. A person instilled with the values of independence, individualism, and capitalism. Nothing's wrong with that word. That word is a great word. Capitalists spawn growth everywhere. Now they want to use it to spur defeat. Until next time.